is Father Chris Valka, and I am the chaplain and director of campus ministry here at the University of St. Thomas. I am also the superior of Keon House and the local Bazillion community uh, here on campus. The Bazillions are the uh, religious community, Roman Catholic community of priests that founded the university 72 years ago, and we've been on campus ever since. So I want to welcome you to the University of St. Thomas this morning. Um, I know many of you were here yesterday, and I've already heard all positive things. Um, and we know that today will be a continuation of many positive things. So we certainly uh, welcome you here um, to be able to discuss this oh-so-important issue um, of climate change and us recognizing what it means to be good stewards. Um, in the Catholic language and lexicon, we talk about stewardships and recognizing that we have been entrusted with a gift that is not ours, but is ours to care for, and how we increase it and transform it and pass it along to others is our call to be good stewards of the gifts that we have been given. And so to be able to help us better understand that, um, we begin this morning with a panel that is moderated by Dr. Christy Manning. It's my pri privilege to be able to introduce her. Um, you can read her pro full, full bio in your programs, uh, but she has a bachelor's degree in human factors engineering from Tufts University, <coughs> a PhD in cognitive and biological psychology from the University of Minnesota, she teaches in the Department of Environmental Studies at McAllistry College in St. Paul, Minnesota. And as I read through her fantastic work and credentials, I know I was drawn by one element of Christie's research that focuses on how people perceive the issue of climate change and the psychological circumstances that motivate community-level climate change preparedness. And so, Dr. Manning, we certainly welcome you to a Texas winter. Um, we know this is a nice brief. Um, <laughs> If a red light blinks on in a 
excited tone? Is there any way to say it, the urgency, sweetly, patiently? If, if, it, if there were a way, would anybody listen? Um, and th that's a quote from 1996 from Tony Meadows. And, and it is a, something that I think about a lot in, in my work because, yeah, I'm, I'm really worried. I'm very worried. And yet I look around me in my everyday life, even in the, the liberal progressive Twin Cities, and I, people say they're concerned, but I don't see a lot of action behind it, right? Um, and I confess that even I was a little complacent until pretty recently. In the fall, in October, when the UNIPCC report came out, the We Have 12 Years report, which is now more like, what, 11 and a half years, maybe a little more. Um, and I, I read it, but I kind of did my the psychological distance thing, the very thing I study, right? And I kind of put it, put it aside. But then about, I don't know, two weeks later after the report came out, one evening, sure, I'll come get you at your friend's house. And then I showed up on foot. She was not happy. But um, as we walked home, she it was a wonderful opportunity to, to talk. And she said to me, Mom, in school we learned about this, this report, this UN report about climate change. And I, 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 can you tell me what this means for my life? And say ever since then, I've, I've been a little bit in hyperdrive, right? I, I, we've got to do something. Um, and so I'm very excited to introduce our, our panelists today because each of them is working in this, this space of communicating climate change. And each of them takes a, a different
response to each other if they have something to say, and then we'll open it up for questions. For um, it looks like the questions are a solid half hour, 30 minutes, depending on how much time we take. So with no further ado, I will let Jenny come on up. Thank you. All right, these things befuddle me so bear with me. Slideshows. Uh, apologies to those of you who weren't here yesterday. I didn't make myself visible or anything. The Center for Public Integrity is 30 years old this year. It's one of the oldest nonprofit investigative news organizations in the country. Um, we get our funding from primarily from foundations, but also responsible individuals who care about justice for all. Um, for the last nine years, I've run the environment and labor team of our Genesee Hall of Environmental Sites now. Um, so um, that's, that's my background. I worked here in Houston for nine years. 7.7 billion people on the planet, some obviously more than others, and we're already seeing the effects. But reporting on climate change can be maddening uh, for investigative journalists uh, like those at the center. Uh, we don't report on every new alarming study. Uh, there are plenty of news outlets that do that very well. Uh, we don't write feature stories about stranded polar bears and melting ice caps as compelling as those can be. So our instinct as investigative journalists is to look for bad actors, for weak regulators, and for craven politicians, which are not hard to find, um, and hold them to account. But, you know, there are so many in this case, where do we even start, right? So as I mentioned a minute ago, the Environment and Workers' Rights team at the center um, is nine years old, but we weren't specifically funded uh, to investigate climate change until three years ago. So that posed a, a challenge for an editor like me. How could we do original stories that would engage readers and make them care about something that seems so overwhelming and abstract? So after agonizing through this question uh, for a while, I realized I was overthinking it. We had already been reporting on the fossil fuel industry for years, writing, for example, about the oil refining industry's use of an extremely deadly chemical called hydrochloric acid and the resurgence of black lung among young coal miners. So it occurred to me we simply needed to bring our deep expertise in environmental health reporting to our climate work. So that is how our climate project, which is called Carbon Notes, uh, was born in 2016. Uh, the stories in the series, which is going on indefinitely, uh, aim to bring this overwhelming topic down to ground level. So today I'm going to give you just a quick tour of the project and then happy to answer any questions either on the panel or come find me afterwards if you have story ideas or any questions. And I'll try to get this one done. Okay. So our launch story, which was done in collaboration with the USA Today Network and the Weather Channel, which has a very good documentary unit, you may not know that, is called America's Super Polluters. The reporter on this story, uh, a very talented woman named Jamie Hopkins, uh, did a remarkable job of merging two 
two very unwieldy EPA data sets, one on greenhouse gas emissions, the other one on toxics, to draw up a list of what you might call the worst of the worst. You know, these are polluters that not only contributed disproportionately to global warming, but also poisoned the air with fine particles and chemicals. So her research led her, of all places, to southwestern Indiana, Southwestern Indiana is home to a cluster of particularly nasty power plants, uh, which were making people sick. While then, while the then governor, you may know his name, Mike Pence, uh, did nothing. So Jamie profiled a woman whose 12-year-old son had died of an asthma attack immediately after the pollution started, and that was powerful stuff. Uh, could, we prove, could we prove that emissions from a certain coal plant caused this boy's death? Science was on our side, and, and Jamie took the extra step of reviewing pollution monitoring data to document the pollution's findings. So her story, uh, plus our publication of what we just called the Super Polluters List, and a Weather Channel uh, documentary that ran about 11 or 12 years at the time, led to all sorts of editorials and news articles in Indiana. Uh, the director of the National Sierra Club's Beyond Coal program pressure started to come down on some of the operators of these coal plants to shut them down. Although I have to say that you know, the Trump administration's undoing of EPA regulations hasn't really helped a lot of the plants that are closed. This is a photo from a story we did last fall in collaboration with the Texas Tribune in Austin, the Associated Press, and Newsy, which is the documentary arm of Scripps Broadcasting. This is part of a series called Blowout. It's documented the effects of current drilling boom in West Texas, as you see here, rapid depletion of groundwater, air pollution, and even things like housing and teacher shortages, traffic, and strains on social services. A month after this story was published, more than a dozen energy companies, without admitting any sort of fault, announced they were going to make a $100 million investment to address the problem in Ohio. I'm sure that was a big story. So the outrage factor, though, became much higher much higher when you consider that most of the oil and gas being pulled from the ground out there uh, is destined for other countries. It's not even being used here. So apart from the local impacts, energy companies, with the full cooperation of the U.S. government, I should point out, are making sure the rest of the world stays hooked on fossil fuels and lowers prices accordingly. Over here. It's the same series, a different story. This one covered the infrastructure fossil fuel infrastructure boom on the Texas coast, the building of petrochemical plants, the expansion of ports that are associated with the boom that I just mentioned, focused on human impacts, uh, potential ruin of small towns like Port Aransas, which used to be one of my favorite places when I lived in Houston, as well as impacts on wildlife, uh, such as the weeping crane and the roasting spring. In addition to fueling climate change, the building frenzy already is hitting people where they live. I sent a summer, we reported that tick and mosquito-borne diseases, some potentially lethal, were advancing northward in the United States to once unhospitable places like Maine. Climate change almost certainly is to blame, according to a 2016 report by 13 federal agencies, that the public response to public health response has been feeble. 
This uh, little boy is named Cooper Leonard. He lives in Bangor, Maine. He contracted Lyme disease in 2016 when he was seven. Uh, the disease sapped his energy and covered him with red blotches, which I think you can see here. Um, he could barely walk during a 21-day regimen of antibiotics. His fingers curled under his hands, and he began stuttering. The thought of being bitten by a tick terrifies him to this day. Quote, at this rate, we're all going to end up with Lyme, his mother told us. In 2017, in tandem with The Guardian, he reported on to this country's most powerful trade association, the American Petroleum Institute. As we said in the introduction to a three-part series, quote, over the course of a century, API has embedded itself in the U.S. government. Decades ago, the Institute embarked on a campaign to sell Americans on the fossil fuel future despite having heard dire warnings of climate change as early as 1959. With more than 650 corporate members, the group now encompasses every sector from the oil and gas industry to the drilling and plastics manufacturing. Big oil's influence has come at a steep cost to the public. From Kyoto to Paris, the Institute has helped block or stall action on climate change, consistently putting profit ahead of health. API is now working to undermine bedrock environmental Americans clean air and water, all while promoting deeper and riskier drilling in places along long lakes, end quote. This is a century-old photo of API's predecessor, which was called the National Petroleum Ore Service Board, meaning the Standard Oil Boardroom in New York. Tourists who visit Los Angeles, uh, and even people who live there, and I talked a little bit about this yesterday, rarely find themselves in the city's Wilmington neighborhood, which is now by the Port of Los Angeles, I think you can remember. And there would be no reason to go, especially if your health was compromised. This is Southern California's industrial underbelly. It's home to a group of oil refiners, oh, excuse me, oil refineries whose toxic emissions combined with port pollution make breathing a risky endeavor. Most of the residents are immigrants. Uh, as the writer on this piece, this one a couple of years ago, I was fortunate enough to encounter Fedora Keo, whom you see here, and a critical care nurse at a hospital in Long Beach, who's shown here with her asthmatic son. This is how the story opened. Quote, in their worst moments, the victim's faces are blue. Their skin is cool, damp to the touch. They are starving for oxygen. Fedora Keo, a critical care nurse, sees them in distressing regularity. Asthmatics in the thrall of attacks that can kill them or decimate their Sometimes they fight while undergoing tracheal intubation and must be restrained. They're panicking, says Kao in 42. The look on their face is the fear of dying. Once again, the goal here was to bring an overwhelming problem, in this case air pollution, down to ground level. Um, another 2017 carbon war story, this one done with NPR, uh, looked at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which apparently never met a natural gas pipeline project didn't like, uh, despite the conse uh, climate consequences. Um, this piece, uh, which appeared on seven different platforms from The Guardian to, believe it or not, Comedy Central, uh, generated quite a buzz. It was told from Oklahoma, where the energy industry, of course, is king, and it documented the oil industry's infestation, I think was the right word, of that, sta uh, that state's public schools. Um, and then finally, uh, this is a piece uh, 
last year with the investigative radio program revealed that reported that nearly 8,000 U.S. public schools, which is about 1 in 11, lie within 500 feet of highways, truck routes, and other roads. The significant track of uh, traffic pollution is higher on and near these busy roads, a toxic mix that can stunt lung, lung growth, trigger asthma attacks, and contribute to heart disease and related disabilities. switch to where I am now, um, which is in a very different place post-IPCC 12 years of climate. Um, I subtitled this, Culture Eats Policy for Breakfast. I first heard this quote from Holly Trockenberg, who's the Department of Transportation head in New York City a few years ago. Um, and I think it's really important to understand that we can put policies in place, we can tell facts, but until it's in our bodies, until we as a culture really understand the truth of things, we aren't, uh, aren't going to act on it. She was speaking specifically about the 25-mile-per-hour speed limit. I'm talking bigger things here, climate change. We need to really deeply understand, personally, the impacts in order to get action on them. And I know that I'm speaking to a very specific group here in this room, but I'm hoping that we can all move to action on it, too. I also joined the ranks of Houston alumni. I grew up in Houston out west. I'm actually taking time this week to be here with my mom. Um, and I grew up knowing the names of these places, Attic's Dam, Barker Cypress Reservoir, but not knowing what they were about. Uh, I played in the storm drains, like that was, we would need to go bike in the storm drains. But again, not understanding that from my perspective, we were lied to. We were not sense like the Dutch know that they live in a space where they're holding back the water. That is not the Houston story, right? We are the energy capital. We live in these places that are massive floodplains, and we don't know that, right? So I feel like there's a whole lot of non-telling of who is happening in the American culture. Um, and I live now in New York City, and there's 520 miles of coastline. New York City is an multiple islands, um, a peninsula, and we are extraordinarily vulnerable to sea level rise and the impacts of storms. We saw that with Hurricane Sandy. Um, when I moved back to New York City my second time around, I started sort of reading some things about climate change, and I came across a report that was written in 2001 that talked about how the 10-foot above sea level line was this place where we were going to see flooding over and over again to the point where those neighborhoods would be uninhabitable once every four years. Um, and, oh, I sort of forgot to mention why I even started reading these reports. I came across documentation of a Bush national study about climate change in which one of his administrators had rewritten the language, which is one of the phrases, to make it sound like climate change might happen, that it was, if it was going to happen, it was going to be an economic benefit. Um, 
And this was in 2006. So again, just not being told the truth of the matter. Um, and the like I said, the report I found, the National Risk Assessment, was written in 2009. Um, so I wanted to really understand um, what does it mean to live and work and be in these places, and who, what do they, what do people know? So here's showing the sort of flood zone of New York City. Um, we're locked into a lot of that now. Um, I did say this was 12 years ago. <laughs> I was working on this project. Um, and what I ended up doing was a creative project. So when I was encountering all this information, I'm thinking, I'm not a lobbyist. I'm not a politician. I'm not an opinion leader. Um, I don't have the sort of power to make change, but I am an artist. And so I can do what I can do as an artist, which is to create work that might get people talking. Um, so for the project, I drew this 10 foot above sea level line um, around the coast of Brooklyn and Lower Manhattan. And you can see I use a sports field marker to do that. The idea was that I was creating something curious so that people would come to me and ask me what, the, what I was doing. And that's a really great way for people to learn is from a space of curiosity. And the intention really was to have a conversation. I'm not a scientist. I did work with scientists on, on the project. But I wasn't, it wasn't about lecturing or anything. I wanted to just talk to people on the street. So we talked in places where they lived, in places where they worked, in places where they played. And we had conversations. They asked what I'm doing. I've drawn this line. It represents areas vulnerable to increased flooding and sea level rise because of climate change. You know, I met families who are like, talk about, at the time, there was still a lot of talk about personal responsibilities that you could take on as a man. And they would say things like, oh, yeah, I already, I, you know, close my curtains when the sun's out so I can get cool in the house. Like, there's a lot of sort of natural behaviors that people already knew about. Um, but one thing that was really interesting, in southern Brooklyn, I met people who, in 2007, had already lost their flood insurance. The flood, the insurance companies knew still, people weren't being told the truth about climate change. Um, after doing that project, it got a lot of great media attention um, for what it's worth. Still, there wasn't a lot of action that happened because of that project. Um, but I was invited to do the project in other communities. And it didn't make a lot of sense for me to go somewhere, learn about another community's risks and potential solutions, and then leave. So I ended up pairing up with a woman named Heidi Quanti, who has a lot of background in community engagement, and we developed what we used to call High, high Waterline 2.0. And we work with communities in locations. We elevate leaders from within. So the first thing we do is we go in and we ask people, would you be interested in this project? We go work with organizations that don't identify as environmental and climate change organizations. We work with housing rights, immigrants' rights, um, transportation activists. And we start the project with a personal story. So it's not about polar bears and ice caps. It's about personal relationship to the risks of climate change. In Miami, where Heidi and I went first, um, for a lot of people we were working on the project with, this was their first encounter with the data about sea level rise and increased flooding in their communities, which to me is shocking. This is now 2013, and they didn't know. They live in one of the most vulnerable locations in the entire U.S., and they didn't know. They were seeing sunny day flooding already, but no one was talking about it. The media wasn't 
so we go in, we kind of we connect the community with researchers, with people working on solutions, and they develop the project, and they go out, and they draw the line, and they share, th they share their own story with their community. Um, so the project has happened in a number of different locations now. Bristol in the UK, Delray Beach in Florida, and Heidi and I went on to sort of take what we've learned and create this guide to creative public engagement, which is about using creativity to get people engaged, specifically around the High Water Run project, but it can be used for other creative projects. Um, and I've sort of since then, oh, I forgot, I'm actually working on a High Water Line in DC. So if anybody wants to talk to me about that, I'm very much in the research phase. I'm sort of making initial introductions and meeting people. Um, I'm a little unsure how much I really want to work on this project, though, and I'm going to tell you why. I'm actually going to skip over, I'm going to get my skip over <laughs> talking about the next project, which is, I'll just briefly refocus on New York City and sort of collecting the complexities of use on the waterways and collecting stories from the people who are both formally and informally shaping the future of the waterways, since the waterways are so deeply tied in with the sort of threat of climate change in New York City. I think it's sort of interesting to think about who are the people making the decisions. So I'm talking to ecologists and educators, um, engineers, and then I'm also talking to those who use the waterways informally, fishermen up here in New Haven Bay, um, surfers, that are already feeling the sort of effects and impacts of climate change. So this is where the, I take a drastic left turn in this presentation because, and this is very raw, um, because of, which one of you work for? Because of the urgency, sorry, <laughs> that we're feeling with climate change these days. For better or worse, I live on climate Twitter, um, and there are horrible stories coming out every day. Most of them are not headlines. Most of them are buried um, deep in the papers, so it is a good time. Um, and we're not, again, we're not hearing about it. It's not in the headlines. But there are people who have decided to speak up. Um, Greta Thunberg, in, in August, who was then 15, started a climate strike and was sitting outside of the Swedish parliament every Friday because her government wasn't doing what was necessary to meet the Paris Guidelines, and she's asking them to meet the Paris Guidelines. She has now uh, gone on to speak at Davos, has been in, was at COP24, has been speaking out, and she, because of her, oops, sorry, that's my own timer, because of her autism, is speaking the truth. And she doesn't care what people think. And I think we all need to get to that point. I used to, I've always been like very calm and mediated and I not, I'm not anymore. I'm going to call people out. I'm going to stand up. I'm going to say what's needed to say. Um, she has inspired kids from around the world. Uh, many of you met my nine-year-old and six-year-old. My nine-year-old has been striking for 11 weeks now, even in a polar vortex. I think this was the polar vortex day outside of City Hall in New York City, uh, demanding that New York City act aggressively on climate change. Um, he was losing sleep in the fall because he had heard a podcast talking about the warming of the earth and how it was going to be sort of like the temperatures that existed when the dinosaurs were alive. And he realized that there were no 
dinosaurs were alive. Um, so he's demanding action. And um, I am also starting to speak up. I consider myself a reluctant activist. I've never considered myself an activist, but now is the time that we have to put our bodies on the line. We can talk and talk and talk, but it's time for action. Um, I have been working very closely with an organization called Extinction Rebellion, which has been closing down bridges in London. In New York City, we did an action on January 26th. Um, one of our protesters hung a banner, um, but, oh, I'm missing my caption. Oh, no. There were, um, I am missing, Kelly thought I was missing this one. There were um, a group of protesters who also closed down Fifth Avenue for 20 minutes. It's not enough to close Fifth Avenue for 20 minutes, but it was a start. Um, the demands of Extinction Rebellion are, number one, tell the truth. The government and the media have to speak the truth about climate change. Otherwise, we're not going to get people to make, to take action and make decisions that are the right decisions to keep humans alive on this planet. The Earth will keep going. Humans will not. Um, number two, that we have net zero emissions by 2025. These goals of 2050 are way too little too late. There's no way that we will survive in the long term if that's what we're heading for. We have to be massively aggressive, and we have to have systems change. We need citizens' assemblies, that's the third demand, to oversee. We're not going to leave this up to the politicians. They have failed us again and again, and we want other people, regular people, overseeing this. And the fourth demand, which is a U.S.-specific demand, is a just transition. We demand to recognize indigenous sovereignty and pay reparations to those who have been harmed by the extractive and colonization, colonizing economic system under which the U.S. was born and grown. And again, I'm sorry I'm not normally an activist, but now I am. Um, it's time, guys, all of you. Like, it is time. Um, so one of the, one of the calls of Extinction Rebellion. We have a lot of principles. We have 14 principles. Uh, one of which is we do only what is necessary, which means that we feel that we only need to mobilize 3.5% of the population in order to get action to happen. Um, and the other one that I really like is we openly challenge ourselves and this toxic system, leaving our comfort zones to take action for change. I am definitely out of my comfort zone. I'm willing to get arrested. I'm also doing organizing and meetings with two kids and art projects happening, but I'm going to meetings two to three times a week to try to make this happen. And we have an International Week of Rebellion coming up on April 15th. There's a youth march on March 15th, so if you have youth, get them involved. Um, she forgot to involve that URL, but if you look at FridaysForFuture.org, there's ClimateStrikeUS.org is the youth strike. And on April 15th is an International Week of Rebellion. There is a Texas group that's starting up, and I think even a Houston one. So I encourage you to go find out more and get yourself out of your comfort zone.
wasn't something that I chose to do initially. I was actually avoiding it for 10 years in my parents' requests, but economic necessities trump sometimes as industry loyalists who are just backward. Uh, sometimes Appalachian stereotypes fly around because they're sometimes ignorant or uneducated. But what a lot of people don't understand is the amount of power that has been wielded over us for over a century, including the, uh, the colonization of our region whenever outside industrialists purchased all the land for mineral rights for coal and timber extraction at the beginning of the 20th century, the late 20th and early 21st century. These issues led to a forced economic system of captive labor, and we have suffered with it ever since. This slide shows the amount of coal production indicated in blue versus the amount of coal jobs in red. And as we see with this arrow, Slot of mechanization in Appalachia, we lost over 60,000 jobs just in a 10-year period. Of course, this induced extreme poverty. Uh, we were subsistence farmers, but without our forests, after they had been extracted by timber companies, we were left to work in the coal mines. And then whenever those jobs went, so did a lot of our liberty and ability to survive. By 2000, this is what Appalachian poverty looked like. This is a map from the Appalachian Region of Tradition. The counties that you see in red have um, poverty levels in excess of 150% of its national average, and unemployment rates 150% in excess of the national average. This sets the tone for the next move by the coal industry. As coal reserves were being more rapidly depleted, especially underground, they sought a new form of coal mining, mountaintop removal, in which they took mountains like these and turned them into this, for those who are unfamiliar with the phrase. They strip off the top of the mountain using dozers and explosives, and of course all this overburden, they call it, to access the coal stream, or coal seam, is then dumped. And to find a place large enough to hold that material, This, of course, covers up ephemeral streams, perennial streams, permanently polluting the water. And, of course, grinding up the mountain uh, creates a lot of surface area earthy particles and it leaches it out into the streams. This is irreparable damage to aquifers and uh, will be a lasting brain upset for who knows how long. It leaves moonscapes in which barren lands uh, replace Appalachian temple forests and biodiversity we have on the continent. Uh, acidic mine drainage is problematic. Some streams having reached pH levels of 2 as sulfur interacts with oxygen in water compounds. And of course they have to clean the coal before they can ship it off to plants to be burned or used for steel production, which leaves a byproduct known as slurry. This was over 600 impoundments with billions of gallons of this toxic waste dotted throughout Appalachia and most of the country before it was submerged. They put it behind slurry impoundments and these dams that uh, are man-
man-made by corporations and other governments. And they have been known to fail, as was the case in Buffalo Creek in 1972. This is in 2000 in Inez, Kentucky. Fortunately, there were no deaths with this one, but Buffalo Creek mobilizing 128 people and then one each year. If they don't have enough room to put it on the surface, they pump it into aquifers, underground abandoned mines, and so forth. And of course, with this atrocity, whenever it became public, we had an influx of people who wanted to do something about it. Environmental activists came in to help some of the grassroots organizers who had already started to kind of communicate with their local people about the problem and the health impacts of this terrible system of mining. Unfortunately, a lot of the people that were within the grassroots movement, of course, lived in an impoverished area. There were very few jobs. They had very few resources with which to fight this battle, especially against the coal industry who has billions, trillions of dollars at their disposal. They even don't care what they're spending it on. They buy off politicians. They fund media campaigns. Up to this point, we have been, as Appalachians, exploited by so many outsiders, be it the coal companies themselves, the land agents, and even the media that came in to show our poverty to the rest of the world, politicians who came in to use the Appalachian people to get votes in the working class votes. So whenever we had an influx of environmental activists coming to the region who, you know, many of them were students, very passionate, very heartfelt, uh, trying to do something good in their lives and for the people, it backfired. Because one of the messages they came in with, messages was, we have to stop this coal mine. And they did not realize the economic impacts that it had on the people who were struggling to barely survive in that region. And the people reacted very negatively. The coal industry picked up on this quickly. They have millions at their disposal. They created the Friends of Coal campaign, a faux grassroots organization. They started pitting Appalachian people and coal miners against these outside elitist environmental activists who were coming to tell us how to live and how to take our jobs away. And as somebody who struggled to, to make ends meet for 10 years while I went to mine, that's a very negative thing to say to people. So they picked up the pride of Appalachia. They did cultural studies. They did actual public marketing that took into account people's uh, and that sense of community and conservation. Many coal miners were hunters and fishermen. And so they started sponsoring poems. We started volunteering to write free bass tags and elk hunting associations. They also infiltrated our school system. This is the CEDAR program, just a tiny bit of leafy green coming here, in which uh, it's the coal education development and resources of southern West Virginia. And they developed K through 12 plans to, uh, to that teaches our kids a new version of the coal industry. In this case, they're rewriting our history, telling everybody that there is no problem whatsoever with the coal industry and that they are there to help and that coal camps were not a good thing for uh, coal use. They also put together videos like this that broadcast get broadcast constantly over the family. And then the backdrop of environmental activism and the liberal to take our jobs and take over our way of life, they come up with these other campaign ads. 
remember this very well, so well. Most of the areas in Appalachia uh, that are deep coal producing counties voted for Al Gore in the 2000 election. We carried those, we carried Al Gore. Um, unfortunately, since the onslaught of, of alcohol removal and the influx of environmental activism that this counter is messaging, counter messaging, we have gone completely red. In fact, deep red. People accuse Appalachians of voting against their best interests without first understanding that their best interest is to be able to put food on the table for their local communities. One of the things that I also noticed in my own research is not only do Appalachian coal miners have negative opinions about coal or about environmental rights, they hold ne negative stereotypes of environmentalists and Monsanto, they also still understand the coal industry is not their friend. They understand their safety issues, the blacklight is still a thing. They understand that they're there for a profit, but at some point it became an issue of the enemy is my enemy is not my friend. The coal industry was open or uh, openly berating environmentalists. Environmentalists weren't responding very well to people's uh, uh, counter arguments about economics and the need for, for a job, and it just began. One thing that I have found, though, is that people in Appalachia do want a better life. They want job opportunities. That's the guys that I started with was their last hope for a decent work life. And we were obligated to stay outside the county here because there was another job that we could work in the county economy due to the tax cuts. This is the kind of thing that we need to, or the thing that we need to understand is that whenever we organized and we did environmental activism, that we first listened to the county people, the communities, understand their needs, let them speak from their own voices, rather than telling them what to do. That's a things need to change. And as Jonathan Smucker said, right does not always mean right either. We know the problems. As environmentalists, we know what needs to be done. But knowing into getting things done in the right way and build a strong base of support for people who want to get people out there voting for the best interest of this county. Thank you for your time. So I'll tell you what, staying up is a great thing. I hear those stories. It's good to have you here country before Columbus, <clears throat> to understand that the native people know what you're going through, to understand things taken away from you, and how you have to be defined, and probably adjust to readjust to the normal. And so <clears throat> when the Arawak native people knew something was changing, before it happened, they saw that the water, the waves, the ocean, told them there was a great change coming. And they knew. And Estoco Calon came, which means colonizer of Christ. And something different came, because it was part of the prophecy. 
so without trying to victimize or even few or be the people here or even continue withstanding to the box that, we, that I'm speaking through in this uh, foreign language called English, and you have to understand that there's other ways of thinking and feeling and knowing and meaning. And it's not this language that I'm speaking to you here. And that's all you have, maybe the colonial language that you speak. So I know they come from the same source, the Bible and the foundation. So what I'm going to do is rush through some thoughts. think differently and live differently. I belong to the Black Hills of South Dakota. The land never belongs to us. So it's difficult for me as a native person to hear Americans say our property, our land, our America, our, ours, mine, ours, ours. It's difficult for a native person to sit here. Through 63 years, I'm hearing this. Tim brought forward the Extinction Rebellion because we've been hanging on since 1492 that we extinguished with our thoughts and our heartfelt beliefs. So I would like to let you know that Jim here uh, knows us very well as the first weapon drawn in conflict is language. And we've been using this language that I'm speaking to you Mother Earth. When you think of real ownership of the power of Mother Earth, I think it's responsibility. But to us, that's isolation. I'm responsible. And it has been such that the intuitive mind, the one that I come from, the intuitive mind, this is a quote from Albert Einstein, one of my said, the intuitive mind is a sacred gift, and the rational mind is faithful servant. We have created a society, America, that honors the servant against the God of the gift. And he also said, a human being is part of the whole, called by us a universe, part limited in time and space. We experience ourselves with thoughts and feelings as something separate from the rest, a kind of optical illusion of consciousness. The delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for the few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from the prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. That's what we do as natives. He also said, we, the Western civilizations, shall require a sense of substantially new manner of thinking if humankind is to survive. This is after, in the 1940s, after he had visited the Hopi. I spoke with him a little yesterday. I talked about the Hopi and the visiting of the Hopi. He said, basically, he was saying that those peoples don't need a new way of thinking. They're already in, con 
conducive way of living with the Lord. I'm just talking about his own people, the Western mindset, with everything separating, transcending, leaving, and yet when you're separating, transcending, leaving, there's no control. When you speak of that separation, trying to have control. So, again, I would welcome you to go to Reagan Bond. What happened after that? That's not our story. It's your story. We're still originally from your roots. So, if, if I was able to speak in the five, next five minutes to cover 500 years, I would, but I can't. So, I'm going to take, again, from the 1937 book, Indians of the Americas, Long Coat. And we believe John Collier, the U.S. Commissioner of Women Affairs, believed that Native American traditional values have something critically important to offer the world today. A profound sense of living with a spiritually receptive consciousness while acknowledging the living, breathing, and multidimensional grandmother earth despite centuries of cultural genocide, yet providing crucial cultural continuity to today. Quote, they had what the world has lost. They have it now. What the world has lost, the world must have again, lest it die. Not many years are left to have or have not to recapture the lost remembrance. This is not merely a passing reference to World War III or the atom bomb. Although the reference includes these ways of death, too, these deaths will mean the end they come. Racial death, self-inflicted, because we have lost the way and the power to live is dead. What in our healed world is this power to live? It is the ancient lost reverence and passion for human personality, joined with the ancient lost reverence and passion for earth and its love of life. This invisible reference and passion for Native American women's almost universally attached and representative groups them have it still. They had and have this power for living, which our modern world has lost, as worldview and self-view, as tradition and institution, as practical philosophy dominating their society, and as the art supreme among all the arts. If our modern world should be able to, to recapture this power, the earth's natural resources, and web of life without being century, which is the process now. The deep cause of our world agony is that we have lost the passion and reverence for human personality and for the web of life and the earth, which the American Indians have tended as central sacred fire since before the Stone Age. Our long hope is to remove that sacred fire from us. Even in the modern day psychology, based on Carl Jung's experience with Native people, has, quote, a scientific understanding of the phenomena. So our Western world has become humanized. No voices now speak to man from stone and plants and animals, nor does he speak to them believing that they can heal. His contact with nature is gone, and with it has gone the profound emotional energy of his symbolic connection to
talking about. And that the first language that was speaking to them was not contained in the valley of Jerusalem. It contained something they called distraction. Even in trying to fight distraction, they were distracted. They were only benefiting themselves because it was the benefit of the Lord and the proselyte himself. And when he bust open the box, loosen the nails of that congregation. I know this. In 63 years of speaking, listening, hearing the gods, many gods, 220,000 organized religions in the world, all with the dominating God, there's only one spirituality. You see, you have to let go This is what has happened to us. And I'm going to finish this up here. Is uh, Chief Joseph of the Nezuko's in a conversation with the government, U.S. government, commissioners tried to convince the leader of the advantages of having a government and a congregation, funded school education, located on a reservation or a concentration camp. Commissioner, why do you want schools, Chief Joseph. They will teach us to have churches. Commissioner, do you not want churches? Chief Joseph, no, we do not want churches. Commissioner, why do you not want churches? Chief Joseph, they will teach us to quarrel about God, to think dogmatically, patriarchal, Schools are to establish fixed habits of response to authority. That's why it takes 12 years. You're supposed to respond inflexibly when anyone from a position of authority tells you what to do. So this compulsory education has taken its toll. And we, for us as Native people, as Lakota, living 150 some odd years in the compound, that's only five generations ago. We can't even think of generationally the time of Warrior Tribe. We know this land and our younger brothers and younger sisters in America still have to learn to do it. This is the hard truth that you're not listening to. Your mom and your mother will tell you your mother if you're going there. Talk about Save her? Of course they have the privilege of money. They have the manipulation of religion, government, and, and the science to cut everything up into vivisection or whatever. And she said, So I'm going to close with this for you young people 
so full of life and so full of peace and sparkling that you remember spirit is ageless. We all have spirit. It's on the continuum. It's too bad they make old people old without the end. And the elders to us is when my mother and my father have gone into the future, they are my future. My father's mother walked into the future. I follow them. That's why we as leaders can listen to our elders and listen to the earth. It's our elder. said this for you young people and all of us. The people are working to get what they want during their lifetime. It's never going to happen. If they're willing to work for something they will never see, when they become the people worth ascending to. must always remain bigger than, than the individual. Oh, and Gabriel Diazzi, always in relationship, in love and relationship, that which moves spirit behind your step moves spirit behind energy, behind passion, behind friendship. There's no beginning and there is no end. It's a continuum. We can't go back. We can't go forward towards the same thing. So I've heard a lot about uh, coal mining and how the 
different effects can affect you. Like, you sometimes, like, when you think of climate change, sometimes you think of, oh, like, flooding, like you were talking about. And uh, that can, you know, for obvious reasons, like polar ice caps and just hurricanes in general that shouldn't be happening but are happening due to climate change. But it's also, there's a lot of different reasons for different things that are happening today. So I know coal mining, it's carbon dioxide, goes into the atmosphere. I was telling the uh, last panelist group about how uh, carbon stays in the atmosphere for the maximum of 200 years, but stuff like methane is 30 times worse than carbon, but only stays up for 20. And nitrous oxide, there isn't a lot of it, but it's three, two to 300 times worse than carbon in trapping uh, heat and it stays in the atmosphere for about 100 years, 200 years, same time period of carbon. So do you, uh, so besides carbon, do you have any greenhouse gases that you would think of also have big problems in like different ways that you would think would help fix that? Um, so let me first also say that coal mining doesn't just mine coal. Uh, the, the coal mine that I worked at, uh, it was a, down below the water table, so it released around 12 million cubic feet, well, 7 to 12 million cubic feet of natural gas every 24 hours out into the atmosphere. Um, and there's other mines in Appalachia that are releasing 23 million. We're aware of those things. But also, as miners, we're, or, you know, people are more interested in how they're going to be able to take care of their families. Personal health. Personal health, uh, if you have time for that, because people are, you know, they're, they're job scared. Sometimes it's not in their best health interest just to be able to maintain a job. It's a captive workforce in an impoverished region. Um, and that's why it's important that we kind of build a broad-based support and address those issues to help people understand in the long run that uh, we have to bring other jobs and opportunities into the, into the region. But unfortunately, just telling people that there's climate change, uh, that coal mining is bad, it's destroying the environment, that would probably keep some of those things from happening. Yeah, and another question I had is it, so is it a mindset for uh, envir- envir- the environment to help, like with the coal mining and the methane and nitrous is it a mindset that everyone needs to have of I need to save my environment, it's not just for me, like you were saying, uh, not you, but the person next to you, it's not just for me, it's for the future, it's something that I might not be able to see, but it's going to happen. So do you think that's a mindset or is it something that you can do without knowing that you're doing it? Meaning, like, you have to think and, like, know. Basically, what I'm trying to say is, does everyone have to think environment? We need to save that now? Or there's small things that we can do in general that can help the environment? Well, there's one thing that I, I like to say is that one man or one person's fear of climate change is another person's desire to save money on their electric bill. I mean, honest to goodness, the only reason that we're mining coal is because there's a demand for it. Why is there a demand for it? Well, there's a lot of cities out there, a lot of people, um, you know, that are using cheap energy, uh, you know, that uh, need the steel, and they're using the steel to make things more comfortable and convenient in terms of, you know, they're building building uh, bridges to make our commute shorter so forth. So, 
you know, honestly, you can fight mountaintop removal coal mining by having the use and overuse of all these resources um, that can start in every single community across the United States um, very easily. It's just, again, you just have to frame it the right way. Are we fighting climate change or is this family saving money on their electric
I guess this follows a little bit on what Casey had just said, but I'm curious the gap between the Native people and, as you said, the white man or Western American people, the gap that exists, you touched on it a little bit talking about how we own land. And in Texas, 98% of our land is privately owned. And so how do we make that shift to move forward, lessen that gap? Um, how do we be advocates of the wisdom of the Native people? Like, how do we start to change that, bring that into the mainstream, whatever it is? Um, yeah, because there's so much richness there, but a lot of people don't know about it. Yeah, I think reference number one is obviously the communicating for climate change uh, such a polarizing issue rather than being more like balanced or uh, balanced with like other
is moving in one direction or climate change is an outcome of society. So I think there's a lot. In America, it's certainly been politicized as well. And I think the polarization is really affecting students and their education. versus environment dichotomy, whether it's in the Tabasco River Basin with the tar sands extraction, whether it's in uh, the fracking fields here in southwestern Pennsylvania, whether it's even on the Navajo Reservation or Nation with uh, Pimani Coal's mining of the Black Mesa. They pit economics of jobs versus the environment, and they do such a good job at adapting to the culture of people who are in need of an economic way of life to survive. So, I mean, they're, they're, they're experts at this. And unfortunately, until we can start listening to those communities and learning to figure out ways to turn those learnings and help with their needs, I don't think that we'll do anything but continue forward with that. So our, our time for this session has just come to an end. I want to thank all of our panelists. I know for me, On behalf of everyone, I'd like to thank you to Christy Carter for helping to moderate this discussion and also to Gail for, for everything you shared. I know there's far more information than the amount of time that we've allotted, but the good news is that there will be lunch coming up and there will be more opportunity for you all to talk amongst yourselves. Um, so now we are going to transition to lunch. Uh, Father Faulkner is still up here, so he's going to give a, a short blessing then we are going to get lunch and then resume at 1230 uh, with Mayor Carter. Thank you. The prayer I thought I would share with all of you is the one that was one of my favorite prayers. It was written by Eleanor Roosevelt uh, when she was asked to chair the committee that would eventually write the Declaration of Human Rights. And this was the prayer that she prayed uh, every night uh, before she would go to bed. I thought it's worth hearing and praying along. Our Father, who has set a restlessness in our hearts and made us all seekers after that which we can never fully find, forbid us to be satisfied with what we make of life. Draw us from base content and set our eyes on far-off goals. Keep us at tasks too hard for us that we may be driven to you for strength. Deliver us from fretfulness and self-pity. Make us sure of the good we cannot see and of the hidden good in the world. Open our eyes to the simple beauty all around us and our hearts to the loveliness that men and women hide from us because we do not try to understand them. Save us from ourselves and show us a vision of a world made new. May 
our conversations include be blessed in this day as we continue to work for a world in need.